0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. We ask you to bless and anoint it, guide and lead us as we look at it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. First cha- Samuel, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Oh. And remember, the last chapter we ended up with the, the prophet coming to Eli and telling him that God was going to judge him because he didn't take care of his son's disobedience. So, verse 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days that there was no open vision. And it came to pass in the time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he, that he could not see. And ere the lamp of the God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of the God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I. You have called me. And he said, I have, I called you not. Lie down. And he went and laid down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You did call me. And he answered, I called you not, my son. Go lay down. <laughs> and Samuel did not yet know the, know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am. You did call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore, Eli said unto Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he call you that you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went to lay down in his place and the Lord came and stood and called it as the other time Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. All right. So, we're going to look at this uh, section here of the call of Samuel. Uh, it starts out in verse 1 The child Samuel ministered before the Lord, unto the Lord, before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. Uh, so, Samuel is, is serving in the temple. As far as we know, he doesn't qualify as a priest, he's just serving in the temple. Because there's nothing about his lineage that tells us he was a priest, but he was doing a Levite's job. He was dedicated to the temple and he was being raised to serve probably every way except for making offerings. Because he wasn't a priest, he wasn't allowed to make the offerings. Uh, and then it says, the word of the Lord was precious. And that literally means rare, valuable. Uh, at this time god is not speaking a lot to his people now this doesn't mean he didn't speak at all because last chapter we read about the prophet who came and told eli the vision but apparently there's no prophet that's prophesying to the people as a whole there might be messages like the one to to eli that comes along Uh, there's a period between the book of malachi and and Matthew that they call the 400 silent years and i've heard a lot of people say that god did not speak during the the 400 years and i disagree with that i believe what there was was no prophet speaking in a way that wrote book that wrote a book or anything but to say that nobody spoke of god god has always got a remnant going and he speaks to his remnant and here it's indicating God's word, when he does speak, is precious. There's not a lot of it going on. Eli, the, who's the priest, isn't, isn't teaching very well, and he's not, he's not holding a very good. And his sons definitely aren't teaching, <laughs> teaching God's word. Uh, and it says there was no open vision. In other words, there was no vision to everybody, like we'll see in Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah. They preached to the entire nation. So they're saying there's nobody preaching to the nation. There's nobody, nobody being a judge or a ruler to the nation that are, that's speaking for God. And uh, there, there's definitely going to be a remnant around because God says he always has a remnant of people that follow him. He never, never is without everybody. Then it said it came to pass when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim and he could not see, which means he was getting to that tired state. He was falling asleep. Uh, when I first read that, I'm going, is it saying that he's gone blind? But then I'm kind of reading on, and that's not, not really the context here. And uh, so his, he's just getting tired. He's getting tired. It's getting dark. He probably is going a little blind as well, but we're going to leave this one as he's, he's laid down. He's going to sleep. And this section is written in kind of a poetic, poetic uh, language here. And ere the lamp of, the, of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. So the lamp of God, I had to do some research on this one because I wasn't sure what they were referring to, but apparently during uh, this time, at night, they they would light some lamps, oil lamps, and there was enough oil in the lamps that they would burn out just before dawn. Okay, so it's saying he went to sleep, And the lights had not gone the the lamps had not burnt out. So we're not at dawn when all of this happened, but we're not we're someplace between the time of dark when it were started and before the lamps went out. So we have a twelve hour period there where this could can happen. And the interesting thing is that they're calling the tabernacle in Shiloh at this time the Temple of God. Okay? It is the tabernacle, but it is now staying stationary as far as we we understand it stayed in Shiloh until David moved moved it. Once they got in the land, they put it in one place, and I guess they just started calling it the temple, which literally is where God dwells. <laughs> All right, so they're calling it a temple. It is not the temple of <laughs> Solomon later on. It is the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, that they that they have, where the Ark of God was. And remember, the Ark sits on top of the mercy seat. In the mercy seat is placed the the Ten Commandments of the pot of manna and the rod of Aaron that budded. And, there over, and over that is the mercy seat. And then the angel's wings go over the mercy seat. And once a year, the pre- high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and put the blood, of, blood of, the, of the lamb on the mercy seat for forgiveness for the people as a nation. And that's what was in. That's what it's talking about. That's what when it talks about. The Ark of the Covenant. That's what they're talking about. That whole, the whole, the whole thing. The Ark is actually the box underneath the Mercy Seat, and the Mercy Seat holds the Law and God's provision, and then it's covered by the Mercy Seat. And that's what he's talking about when they re- refer to the Ark of the Covenant. That's what they're referring to. It's one of the pieces of the, two of. The, it's, together, they're two of the two of the pieces of furniture in the. Holy of Holies and uh so it's just making sure we understand where, where 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 we're at what we're talking about he's he's laying the and he's laying the time frame and it says that Samuel was laid down to go to sleep, so it's bedtime basically uh and it's somewhat early when this when this first starts early in well early in the evening early in the morning, whatever you want to call it uh late in late in the evening and it says. The Lord called Samuel, called Samuel, and he answered, "Here am I." Okay, he's just figuring, okay, somebody, I'm being called. I need, I need to run. And then it says he ran into Eli and said, "Here I am. You did call me." Okay, and Eli just says, "You know, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep," Uh, or, or you know, uh, so. You know, we kind of can picture this. You know, Eli's just just falling asleep, according to this. He's, his eyes are getting tired. He can't. He can't barely see. He's getting to that point of very tired where he can't you can't see straight. And all of a sudden, Samuel comes running in and goes, "What did you call me for?" He goes, "I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You know, probably he might have even been going. I didn't call you. You're dreaming. Get back. Go back to sleep." And uh, you can you can picture this. You can picture this kind. Of, it's almost kind of comical when you when you think about it, you know, he's hearing a voice saying, Samuel, and he runs over to who he thinks it is, because uh, the brothers probably, you know, uh, Samuel's kids probably never called him for, for anything. You know, he's, he is Eli, or, or Sam, uh, Eli's sons are never calling him. You know, he's, he's Eli's servant, basically. Uh, and so he goes back, and then it says in verse six, the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, you did call me. And he goes, I didn't call you, go lay down. You know, and you could picture this whole thing, you know, you know. And I believe there's more to this than just, I didn't call you, lay down. It's, you know, would you quit dreaming? You're, you're just dreaming. Quit, quit, quit running in here and waking me up, you know. Uh, you know but by, by, especially about the third time, I mean, it, it, when we get to the third time, he's probably really thinking, you know, Samuel, would you just. But he also gets a little bit of enlightenment by the third time. Eli gets a little bit of enlightenment. Now Samuel did not, in verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord revealed unto him. In other words, he hadn't really had a personal relationship yet. Okay? Well, look who's at the temple. Eli and two boys that are that are sleeping with the women and, and taking the best of the sacrifice. Uh, Eli is not really the greatest... Christ, you know, a spiritual leader at this time. He's going to be spiritual enough as we get into this to realize this must be God talking to him. But, you know, you've got to remember, Eli is not that strong either. He hasn't raised two good boys, or, you know, to begin with. And, but, you know, at the same time, we, we look at this. How many times do people sit in church all their life Even a good church, I'm not talking just sitting in a church, but sitting in a good church where the word of God is preached, the gospel is preached, and still not get to know God. Uh, Greg Laurie has a statement that I love. He says the easiest place to get a hard heart is in church. Because if you stop listening long enough and keep putting it off long enough, you just build a hard heart that won't listen anymore. And so we've got a a nation that's not really paying attention, of people that aren't paying attention really, And, you know, I'm not saying Eli was completely unspiritual because he is going to recognize God, but he's not really pouring it into Samuel. You know, he may even feel discouraged. I poured my life into my kids and look at what my kids have done. I'm not doing it anymore. So there's a lot of reasons why this may have happened. We don't know, but at this point, uh, Samuel doesn't know God and he's being picked by God. And it says God's word is precious, so we're down to a remnant. There's only a handful of people paying attention. We've got Elkanah and Hannah, who seem to be righteous. are coming. He probably would have gotten to know God better if he'd have stayed home, than going, you know, or sooner, at home than he would have yeah. by going to the tabernacle, which is very strange, as you said. You would think it would, you would think it would be exactly the opposite. You know, you're spending your whole time in church. You should really know God at a at a young young age, but you know, Hannah and Elkanah seem to be really following God and, and seeking Him. Eli and his family are not. And so, yes, he doesn't know God yet, or he, or at least he doesn't yet know the Lord in a very personal way. He might, he probably knows about God. Okay, I'm sure he knows. I'm sure he knows the, the founding of the tabernacle and the and the wilderness, the wilderness and the Exodus and Father Abraham and all those stories. But for him right now, at this point in life, they're stories. Yeah, it's, not it's not personal. It's, wow, God was really, really wonderful. And we see this every once in a while when the people have backslidden. You know, Gideon's answer was, you know, that I am, I am the angel of the Lord. Well, where is the God who did all these miraculous things who isn't around anymore? Gideon knew the stories, but he didn't know the God of the stories. And many times for Christians, we will know the stories of the Bible. We will know the, even sometimes the gifts of of God without knowing the giver and and the story, the, the maker of the story. And that's what Greg Laurie was saying, when you get a hard heart, you have all this information, but you never get to know the one that it's about. And many Christians fall into this, they want things from God, but they don't really want God himself. God, I want all that I can get from you, but you could just stay over there, God. Just just hand me the, hand me the gifts. And uh, so Samuel's at this point where he doesn't know God's voice yet. He's not heard God's voice. And he doesn't you know. It's two times he's run over to Samuel and said, you called me, not recognizing the voice. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again, a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, you did call me. <laughs> Yeah, you, you really did. I know, I know you're calling me in the middle of the night. What, did you, what do you need? What's personal with me. <laughs> and then, then here we have Eli getting his epiphany. Yeah. He perceived that the Lord had called the child. Yeah. Now, why he came up with this, I don't know. It really is an enlightenment to the older gentleman who's supposed to know God. And, and it indicates that in some way Eli has a relationship with God. Right. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Or well, at least speaking in the authority of the prophet without knowing what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, but, and, you know, he told his sons, you know, you've got, to, you've got to correct your ways because, hey, you know, if you offend man, God may intervene for you. But if you offend God, who's going to intervene? But he has a very weak, weak faith. And But all of a sudden, he gets this little bit of an epiphany. Uh, God's talking. <laughs> we happen to be in God's temple. Or maybe he's talking. Uh, and he hasn't been hearing the call. So he knows that this is somebody that's been talking to Samuel. And uh, and it says, verse 9, Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lay down, and it shall be, if he call you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. He knows what to say. He knows what to do. And this is good advice. So this is what I'm saying. Eli seems to be... But we would probably say, in you know, a backslidden Christian or a very weak Christian. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be on fire for God, but yet there's enough of God's information into him that he goes, it's been a long time since somebody's spoken to, to one of the people, but hey, I remember the story of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Gideon and, and uh, Deborah and, and all these guys, you know, and Samson, you know, maybe it's God. And so, hey, you know, it's not me calling you. You just told God you're listening. <laughs> And so I really appreciate this, that he, he finally comes to his his senses and knows what's going on. And it takes him a little while, but he gets there. And then in verse 10, and the Lord came and stood and called at as the other times, Samuel. Samuel. And this time he calls him twice. But maybe he'd fallen deeper to sleep, where he's making it clear that it's him. Then Samuel answered, speak, your servant hears. Okay? Uh, and... You know, so he says, I'm ready. Tell me, tell me what it is you, that you're wanting. Samuel already knows the story of how he came about. He knows that his mom prayed for him and asked for him and that God blessed him, and that's why he's at the temple, because he was asked for and, and was devoted to God. So he probably has this idea that there's something special in store for him, or he's hoping that something special is in store for him, because he hasn't really had, you know, talk with God yet. Yeah, better than Eli and his kids. Yeah. <laughs> All right, verse 11. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel that is both, at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all the things that I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity that he knows Because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall be purged for sacrifice, uh, shall not be purged with sacrifice, nor offering forever. All right. How would you like this to be the very first thing you hear from God? Uh, Hey, the, the master that has been taking care of you and keeping you is going to be destroyed. And his whole family. Not the best message that you can uh, think about hearing. And, you know, so it says, God says, Behold, I will do into a thing in Israel that both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. You know, it's going to astonish them. It's going to amaze them what God is getting ready to do. And in that day, he says, I will perform against Eli all the things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will... I will also make an end. Now I don't know if Samuel knew about the prophecy that we read about in the first chapter or uh, second chapter, the last chapter or not. But God's telling him about it. He goes, "I've said that this man was going to be judged and he was going to lose all of his family. It's going to happen and when it happens I I will make sure that it comes to an end." Mm-hmm. You know, and this is true. When God says he's going to do something, it is going to happen. It may seem like a long time to us as humans. To God, it's no time at all. But when he starts something, he finishes it. When he started the judgment upon Israel and Judah, he finished it. He put them into captivity. And he says, you're coming back. And then he goes, by the way, in the end days, you're going to be coming back as a nation, which we just, we saw in 1948. Israel became a nation after almost 2,000 years, 1,900 years, of not being a nation, they became back. An amazing thing. There's no nation that's ever done that, that has not been in existence and then became fully back into existence. What a miracle. And God says, said it was going to happen. You know, And God says, I will, what I say, I'm going to do. Which is why he expects us to do what we say because we're supposed to be like him. We say we're going to do something. He expects us to follow through and do it. And so, and it goes uh, in verse 13, for I have told him, and this is why I kind of think that maybe Samuel wasn't privy to the, to the uh, prophecy. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Mm-hmm. Okay, he says he knew of their misbehavior and did not correct them. And it says, because of that, Samuel, I am going to judge him forever. That's a long time. Uh, now, I don't know what this means that he didn't go into heaven, but he's going to lose all of his family. You know, He's going to lose his sons. He's going to lose his life. And there's no repentance for him, it says, you know, that, that his sin is not going to be covered. His sons made themselves vile or despicable, cursed is what it literally means. And he restrained them not. Uh, And ideally, he should have, if they would not have listened, theoretically, he should have taken them before the people and said, my sons are rebellious rebellious sons and aren't listening to me. And they should have stoned them. Uh, At the very least, he should have kicked them out of the tabernacle. but the law made a very strong provision. If your, if your son, it says son, was so rebellious that you could not control him, you took him out and, and declared that they were rebellious and that and and people were to stone them. Pretty ultimate sin if you were going to be a rebellious child. So that was what should have been done, and, but like I say, at the very least he should have said, your actions are not are bringing shame to God and, and me, you're not, you're not priests anymore, you're, you're kicked out. He did neither. He did basically he did nothing other than the one side saying, "Would you guys please behave? You're 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 going against God." And that wasn't much of trying to restrain them. And God says he didn't restrain them. Therefore, he's going to die, and his family is going to die. And it says, "And therefore I have sworn unto the house unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor with, with offerings forever." In other words, no matter how many sacrifices they make, they've gone too far. And this is what we've said in this last uh, chapter. We talked about there are sins that lead to death. If you want to keep sinning and you won't repent, God will say, okay, I've had enough. You're coming home. And these boys had hit that spot. God says, enough. We're not going any further. And we think about their, their sins. You know, They were taking the best of the the meat that that was supposed to be burned and didn't, and they wanted the fat on the meat, which was definitely supposed to go to God. And God really didn't care if they took the the actual meat of the shoulder or anything, but it goes, the fat goes to him, the innards go to him. And they were taking the best stuff for themselves, and then worse off, they were sleeping with the women at the gate, which was not part of God's worship. That was worship of idols that they did that kind of stuff. So these guys were being vile. They were making it the people, as you recall, that they abhorred coming to the tabernacle. They did not want to come because they were being so abused by the leadership. And this is one of those things we talked about. We've got to be careful how people are treated when they come to church. not, Not to make it that we water down the gospel, but we don't want to make them be abhorring church you know you know especially at the pastor level they cannot be hypocritical and say one thing and do another you know like his sons were doing oh we're going to offer your sacrifices but we're going to take the best of it and we're going to sleep with the women and and we're going to do all these things you know we're going to do whatever we want but we're going to we're going to offer the sacrifice for you what what we what we don't want you know so it's kind of like the idea that they were offering God what was left the the way that most people give God in our lives, you know, God. Uh, once my bills are paid, you can have whatever's left. God, if I if I have enough, I'll give you I'll give you part of my tithe because I'm sure I won't have my tithe, but you can have part of my tithe. God, uh, I'll come to church once a week. You know, that's uh, that should be plenty. God, you read my Bible, God. Who, yeah, you know, I don't have time to do that. That's the sons' way. The sons were acting. All right, and poor. Samson, uh, Samuel, you know, he gets to get this message and he goes, oh no, Eli and, and, and his sons are going to be judged. What a message to be your first message. It gets worse. <laughs> Verse 15, and Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord has shown unto you? I pray you hide it not from me. God, do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things which he said unto you. All right. He's putting Samuel in a very interesting predicament. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's good for Samuel because he's going to have to say many things that the people are not going to want to hear. So his first trial, <laughs> he gets to meet God that night, and the very first trial is to tell the man that has been raising him basically like a son, or, you know, or at least keeping him and caring for him, bad news <laughs> from God. Uh, you know, so it says, Samuel went to sleep, and fi- I, I lay until morning. I actually didn't even say he fell asleep, and I don't know that he would have slept that night. Uh, he just got a message from God, and it's not—it's a hard message to hear. He probably didn't sleep. And yet, here we are. He gets up in the morning. He opens the, the gates like he's supposed to do. He does all of his work that he's supposed to do, whatever, all that. It says, you know, he, he opened the doors, and it says he feared to tell Eli the vision. And you can picture this. This is the man he's grown to respect. He honors. He's probably somewhat, you know, has a love for him as basically a father. And he's going to have to give him the message, you know, that God is going to destroy you. And again, I don't believe that he knew the prophet that came and saw Eli. Eli already has this message. So it's not something new and unusual. Uh, and Eli is going to press him for, for this. Now, Eli is probably afraid that it's a repeat of the message he already had, or he may be hoping that, you know, I talk to my sons and ask them to behave. Maybe, maybe God's going to recant his statement. So I think he's expecting bad news, but he's kind of maybe hoping that God is recanting a little bit and going to give him some good news. Uh, and uh, he goes up to him and says, you know, after he calls him, and he says, you know, and Samuel, and my son, and he says, here I am. He says, what is the thing the Lord has said unto you? I pray you hide it not from me. And I kind of picture this. Let's picture, I kind of picture this. What is the thing that God has said? And he probably saw the look come over Samuel's face. You know, uh, maybe that. yeah, just like that. He dropped his head. He dropped his eyes. You know, I really don't want to, I, I don't want to talk about this. I really don't want to talk about this. Uh, and at that point, I think Eli knows what the message is. Okay. At that point, because he knows that God has pr- pronounced the curse on him. And so he's in a place where, you know, Samuel, he knows now that Samuel has talked to God. And, and I can picture it. You know, what, was, what, did, what did God say to you? And I could just picture the whole, you know, dropping of the head. I'd shake, maybe even the shaking of the head, you know. I really don't want to go into this. But he presses him. I pray, hide it not from me. God do so to you, and more so if you hide anything that he of all the things that he has said. So he's pressing him hard. He goes, you know, if you hide anything, I I am praying, and you know, his respect for his for the priest is going to make him open his mouth. And again, I don't know if Samuel understands what he's asking, or uh, Eli is understanding what he's asking for. Uh, I believe he does. Because of what he says, you know, if you if you hide anything, you know, ask that God's going to do the same act to you or more. So, as I said, he knows the prophecy. He's expecting to hear it again from, especially when he looks. You know, when he first asked him, he was hoping to see a smile on Samuel's face and you know something, some kind of good news. But when he sees probably a a look of fear or or distress, he he knows what the message is, and he wants to, and he's doing actually a pretty good job teaching him whatever God says, speak. That's a good lesson for him. Not that Eli wants to hear the message, but I think in many ways Eli was trying to be a good leader to Samuel. He'd seen Samuel's dedication to God, the motive you know, that he ministered, that he cared, that he was, had the respect of the people. And here he's doing one more lesson for him. Maybe not even totally realizing it, but he's given him a lesson that when God speaks, you speak. And don't hide anything that God speaks. And this is quite an important lesson for us as Christians. When God teaches us something and then gives us the opportunity to share it with somebody or the mandate to share it with somebody, we need to share what he speaks. And this is happening in so many churches where the pastors and the leaders are watering down God's word and it's a sad thing when we look around the landscape of America, especially, and Europe, where we see denomination after denomination that doesn't speak the word of God, doesn't even believe the word of God, and then we see other churches where God's word is preached but they try to water it down you know, not totally denying it but not giving the complete truth and Samuel is being learning this very important lesson. When God speaks, you speak. And it's a hard thing sometimes. It's, it is much easier to use politically correct speech and to avoid certain topics that are gonna make people mad, but that is not being a good shepherd. It's not being a good teacher. So Samuel is learning a very important lesson here. And Eli's teaching it to him, whether he meant to or not. He's teaching him a very important lesson to speak what God says. And we're going to see Samuel doing that for the rest of his, rest of his uh, career in this book, is that he teaches what God te- says to, to, to share to people. In verse 18, and Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. And It's pretty, you know, pretty interesting. You know, Eli's answer is very simple. You know, that's God's will. If it's God's will, he already knew it. You know, uh, if that's what God's going to do, it's a confirmation of what he's already heard. And Samuel gets the practice of being able to tell him everything that God says. You know, and you know, I can picture him feeling, you know, well, what's Eli going to do? How's Eli going to react? And Eli takes it very humbly apparently, <laughs> and he says, well, that's God's will. He already knew it. It's confirmation for what he already knew. And like I say, I think he was hoping that maybe he might get something different. Okay, God, you, you've, talked to, you've talked to my servant. You didn't talk straight to me. You didn't go through another man. You gave a child or a young man this word. Maybe it's good news. Yeah. And like I say, when he first asked him, tell me, I can, I can picture Samuel's face just dropping. Don't want to tell you what God said and being forced to say it. And Eli seems to be somewhat of a man of honor because he says, okay, whatever God says. We saw the same thing in the previous verse, the chapter that apparently he was not overly put out by it. He understood that God judges and that God punishes. And I have this feeling, I picture Eli kind of as a very weak follower of God. You know, He understood a lot of things, but he never really got too deep into a personal relationship. And this is what I see. So many Christians are this way. They, God, I'm, I'm yours. I really am yours. Just don't ask me to let you be my Lord. Don't ask me to you know, get really close to you, but I'm yours. You know, I, li- I like the idea that you've forgiven my sins. <laughs> and probably believe it, but never take the step of making him Lord. And there are many people out there that believe if you don't make Jesus Lord, you're not saved. And I walk a fine line on that. <laughs> because it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that, that call and, and means to believe. So I understand what they're saying. And I understand that uh, if you're not making God Lord of your life, there is a problem. And now whether you're saved or not, <laughs> I'm not going to quite cross that line. But if you really have God in your heart, you're going to make him Lord eventually. And that's the key to this whole thing is, are people growing? Because when people get saved, they don't know what they've done. At least I didn't when I got saved. And most people I know don't have a full understanding of who God is and what he's expecting from them when they get saved. All they know is they're a sinner. They, need, they don't want to go to hell, so they ask Jesus into their, you know, to forgive them and, and, and come into their life. They don't know what's going to happen from that point on. They don't know that he wants to be Lord of their life. And master of their life and, and director of what's going on, and many don't ever get there. And here we see Eli. I think was on that point. Now he's a priest. He was the son of Aaron, so he's automatically a priest. But he's also apparently the high priest at this point in time. There's no other priest out there except for him and his sons. Now there's got to be others because when they're killed, they're, the line, the Aaron, the Aaron's line keeps running. And We're going to see one that uh, later on, one who's born of of uh, Eli's son's uh, wife after they lose their life. Uh, But you know, we see here a man who seems to want to obey God, seems to want to follow God, but is very weak and doesn't know how. And he's the leader. And if the leader doesn't know how to follow God, they're in trouble. And I don't understand why he didn't get taught better or why there was nobody else? That we do know that they're in a place where they're coming down. You know, they've left the last prophet, the last judges, and they're in a downward cycle, and the people aren't probably most of the people probably aren't coming to the tabernacle to worship except in their perfunctory manner. God said to come here three times a year. We're coming three times a year to offer our sacrifices just in case, and obviously Ei really didn't know God. I think he loved God. He understood God. He knew the stories had some trust in God, but not enough trust to impart it to his sons. And one of the saddest things in, that are out there is when families do not do a good job passing the baton to the next generation to follow God. And I've seen it over and over in lifetime. I've seen it good, done well, too. But I've seen so many people that just don't do a good job of getting their children to understand God in a personal way. And again, it goes back to, if you hear it too much, it's easy to get, grow hard and cold to it, especially if your parents aren't living it out. Mm-hmm. Okay, And believe me, that is the accusation I've heard from so many kids in churches that have strong Christian parents. Well, you know, you hear, you know, your mom and dad are so Oh well, Yeah, well, you should know them at home. <laughs> you know, they talk about all this love and forgiveness and reading their Bible, but I've never seen it. And this is the one thing that is so important for all parents. Your kids need to catch you praying. They need to catch you reading your Bible. You need to bring God into their into their situations. That doesn't mean you're going to hold church at your home all the time, and even official Bible studies at your home. But the you know what I tried to do with my kids. They'd ask questions. We tried to go to the Bible. Here's what God says. They, we would pray with them. We would get together with them and pray. Uh, you know, my dad did the same thing. I'd catch him studying the Bible all the time. And, you know, any time I had a question, it was automatically, let's go see what God says. But when you're a teenager wanting to have something you can argue with, uh, and, you're, and you're a Bible-believing teenager that wants to believe the Bible, and your dad takes you back to the Bible for all your all your decisions, there's nothing to argue with. Now you're not arguing with dad, you're arguing with God. And I wanted to follow that, so it wasn't, uh, you know. But you know, too many times Christian children are not seeing their parents following God. And I'm not saying they're not. A lot of times you'll hear the testimony of a Christian mom who's got young kids, and, and what they'll say is, I get up really early in the morning to do my, my devotions because that's the only time I can have any quiet. Well, I understand what they're saying, but by the same token, their kids are not seeing them follow God. So there's a two-edged part to that. Now hopefully when those kids get out of being toddlers and and get it a little older they move it to a time when their kids will see it. But a lot of times that never happens. They, the parents do their devotions early in the morning or late at night when the kids are in bed because that's when it's quiet. And it's not good for the kids. No, it should be like the family time. Well not even doesn't necessarily have to be a family time but Do they see you reading, studying your Bible at a desk rather than watching TV? You know, and they come in and there you are studying or praying or whatever it might be. And they go, okay, there's something to this. Okay, it's not just Sunday morning that mom or dad's reading their Bible. It's not just, you know, and and our prayers need to be more than just at every meal or whatever. You know, know, and be ready to pray with the children. You're hurt, oh, let's pray for you. God, I ask you to help you heal this heal this injury or heal this emotion or whatever it might be that they're needing healing. God, this, we, need, we need direction and help on this. This is what you say in your Bible, help it to be understood. Uh, you know, these things are very real and when kids don't see this kind of lifestyle, they start to begin to, to believe that Christianity is nothing but hypocrisy. Eli's sons maybe saw that. Maybe they didn't see Eli doing anything but service. Maybe they didn't see him ever pick up the Torah and read it, and I'm not saying he did or didn't, but they probably never saw. No, they just were rebellious kids. But, uh, but again, I've seen this happen so often over the years. You know, pastors' kids are some of the ones you don't usually want to talk to about their their dad's lifestyle outside of the church. <laughs> you know. Uh, because I would have to stop them, especially if they started saying bad things. It wasn't too bad, but the ones that would say good things about it were okay. But every once in a while, well, oh, you, you knew my dad, I'd say, no, don't, we're not going to go there. <laughs> I don't want to hear any negatives about your dad. Uh, you know, you need to talk to your dad about those. <laughs> but those are also the kids that then start turning away from God. And our Christian kids are turning away from God in droves because they're not seeing something that's real that they can believe in in many cases. Now, the kids who get on fire for God, oh man, it is amazing when the teenagers get on fire for God because they have found something and they want to lift God up and they want to evangelize and they are amazing when they get on fire for God. But, you know, when they just see hypocrisy in their life, it's hard for them to grow. Or And, you know, this is so important because Samuel is giving this message and, and Eli gives the Pretty appropriate message, you know, back to him. You know, okay, I asked you to tell me, and you told me. If this is what God's wanting, then so be it. This is his will. And like I say, it's a confirmation of what he's already heard. It's funny, because Eli seems to tune into God a few times, like, but he didn't do it all the time. Is it too weak to do it? Or? It's, again, carnal Christians will sometimes hear the message and tune in to God for, for a couple days or a week or two, maybe even turn their life over to God for a short time, and then their carnality gets hold of them and they fall back. And uh, most people have that story. Okay, if, if they don't stay strong with God from early on, there will be times when they fall away for long periods of time and say, well, it just wasn't real enough and I, or I wasn't strong enough. Because if you don't make Jesus Lord of your life, you'll never be strong enough. Okay. You'll hear a good message, you'll hear the Holy Spirit'll prick you that you're supposed to follow through with it. And unless you let God become your Lord, you're not gonna ever follow through and you try to do it in your own strength and you fail. And you fail often enough you stop listening to God pretty much. But every once in a while if you if he's truly if you're truly his, you'll hear that message that says, Oh, oh God, was that you? And that one message might be what it takes to all of a sudden get a hold of your heart and turn your, turn your life around. And that's where Eli's at. He's not turning around. He's kind of resigned. Okay, God, if I'm going to die, I'm, you said I'm going to die. And he's been told you are going to die. You and your family, there's no repentance from this. You, And in this case, this is a James 3, 1 thing, that it, the teacher is worthy of, of greater punishment for... For what they do. And so Eli has, and his sons have gone so far as leaders. Now, if he had not been the priest of the people and his sons were this bad, God may have just said, you know, you have a chance to repent. But Eli himself had made it clear to his boys, if you disobey God, who's going to stand up for you? Who's going to defend you when you, when you violate God? And so he's kind of resigned at this point. Okay, I was a leader. I have really, really messed up. God's pronounced judgment on me. It's going to happen. And we see this whole process of his just saying, okay, it's, it's going to happen. And I feel sorry for Samuel because this was a hard first message. Most of us on our first message don't have to preach such a hard message as he has to preach. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you leaders of the, of the church, you're, you're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, that's not a great message to be teaching on your very first, first message. You know? And this is his first message. Uh, sorry, Eli, you're, you and your kids, are, you, know, you and your boys are going to die. And, uh, and verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he did not let any of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel came from Dan even to Beersheba, uh, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. All right, so Samuel's growing. This indicates that there's going to be some time between this prophecy and the death of Eli. And we don't know how long. One of the things that happens so often in the Bible, a lot of times there are no time markers telling us how long a period of time goes through. All it says is Samuel grew. Did he grow physically, spiritually, uh, emotionally? We don't know exactly how he grew. Just giving this message to to Eli might have been a huge growth experience. I think it's referring to him actually growing spiritually and physically and that there's a period of time here that's going on. Because the people are not usually going to follow a child. So he has to get up to a certain age where he's going to be respected. For the Jewish people, at least by Jesus' time, 12 years old you were considered a man, but you couldn't teach and, and run things until 30. That's when you could get the title of rabbi, which is why Jesus did not start his ministry until he was 30 because the people would not have listened to him before that. He was not old enough to be a teacher. I have a feeling that this is what's going on, is he's having to get to this whatever age it might be, and it might be 30 back then, I don't know. I don't know what the custom was, but he had to get to that certain age that people are going to listen to him because he's going to become the ruler of the people. He's going to be the last judge of Israel. So he needs to be able to be respected, and I don't think they're going to respect a 13, 14-year-old. Maybe considered an adult, but that's you know, even in their day, that was an immature adult, not somebody you would follow into any any battles or or listen to. And even at that, a 13-year-old trying to correct a 60 or 70-year-old is a pretty big deal. It's hard enough when you're mid 20s, late 20s, 30s to have to correct a an elderly person, but you know. 13, 14-year-old, pretty tough call. And we don't know how long this process is, but it says, I believe there's a time period here. that, And again, we don't even know when God called him, because all we know is that he's been serving. Uh, but it says that he let none of his words fall to the ground. When he heard from God, he listened. I believe he probably even started reading the Torah very instinctively at this point, God speaking to me. There must be something. He probably read and studied the, the Torah. He wanted to know what God was saying. He wanted to know what was happening. He wanted to know more than just the basic stories. And you know, so many people I meet in in Christian world barely know the stories of the Bible sometimes, and that's scary to me. Bad enough when the world doesn't know them. Uh, when I was taking my English 1A class, we they were reading this uh, section out of a classic literature and it referenced one of the Bible stories. I don't even remember what the Bible story was at the time. Huh? It no. might have been Noah. It might have been anything. I don't, uh, don't think it was Noah. But, but the, the class, the teacher goes, well, what do you think this meant? And the class were coming up with all kinds of crazy, crazy things. You know, and I'm listening, the teacher doesn't seem to know what the answer was either. You know, I'm going, would you all like to know what this is really about? And they go, How do you know? I go, Because it's a biblical reference. There's a Bible story behind the reference. And when you know the Bible story, the whole passage explodes into meaning. So I get to tell them a Bible story. And they go, Oh, whoa! You know, lights click on. You know, all of a sudden the, the Bible story enhances what was being said. And our great literature has so many biblical references into it there's so many of our hymns that have biblical references in them that when i you know when i notice them i'll ask do you all know what this is do you do you understand what the cleft of the rock is you know that was when moses was hide, was hidden in as god showed you know when he requested to ask to see god uh, see god's face and he goes no you can't see my face but i'll let you see my backside and he put him in the cleft of the rock put his hand over him and walked past calling out his name you know god called out his name his name not not Moses name yeah. but you know you read you hear the song hide me in the cleft of the of the rock and you go okay uh, why are you why are you hiding me in a crack in the rock God yeah <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know uh, but it is one of those things unless we know our Bible stories we don't really know some of these references even in the Bible we don't know the references that they're making, especially in the New Testament. They, Paul references the Old Testament stories all the time. You now, Paul sometimes references some very bizarre, hidden ones that not everybody knows, too, because he was a master with the Word. So sometimes you have to study what he's referring to until you get to know the Bible really well. But you know, we look at these things, and if we don't understand what's being referenced, we don't really understand what's going on. And I picture Samuel going in and saying, I want to know. I want to know this God who has now called me. Saul of Tarsus knocked off his horse, spent three years in the, in the wilderness with God being his teacher, relearning everything that he had ever been taught about the scriptures. And he knew his scriptures well. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a, and a Sanhedrin, which meant he had the Pentateuch memorized. Okay? All first five books of the Bible Memorized and probably large chunks of the prophets. Wow. So, you know, here he is having been taught all this stuff. He's been taught by one of the greatest Jewish yeah. teachers of all time, the number three of all time, how to interpret them and God takes him out in the wilderness and teaches them a new way of looking at all these scriptures from his perspective, not the, the rabbi's perspective. So he comes out, and he knows things about the scriptures that nobody else is really understanding, and God has revealed things to him that nobody else understands. Remember when Jesus meets the two men on the road of Emmaus, he spends the entire day yeah. going through the scriptures and telling them, here I am, you know, here's, the Messiah, here's 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 the Messiah. And then he broke bread with them, and they recognized, it's, it's you. <laughs> Uh, and he disappears, <laughs> and then they start the very dangerous job at evening to go back to Jerusalem. Okay, instead of waiting the next morning, they're so excited. We got to go tell. We got to go tell the rest of the disciples what we what we had. But Jesus showed all through the scriptures, and it's amazing to me as we go through the scriptures that we see Jesus everywhere. All over the place, we see him. We see him in the names of people. We see him in the activities they're doing and how they're called and and who they meet and all these things that go on. So I really do believe Samuel was getting into the word of God and saying, and all he had was five books at that point, saying, I want to see. I want to know this God who's called me. That would be my answer. I want to know the God who's called me. And it says in all, in verse 20, And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samson was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Now, saying Dan to Beersheba. It's not Samson, it's Samuel. (laughs) All right, Samuel. Dan to Beersheba really doesn't mean much to us. But for us in America, it would be something like everybody in America knew from New York to LA. Okay, from one end of the country, to the other, Dan was the most northern city, or one of the most northern cities. There were some smaller towns, but they saying from the north of Dan all the way down to the south of Beersheba, which was right on the wilderness of of Sin, knew that Sam uh, Samuel was called to be a prophet. That's pretty good, pretty good uh, communication, and I'm sure it wasn't Samuel who was putting this out, but it was. I'm sure they all heard about God talking to him. And then he seems to be, he's growing in his wisdom, and he's already been respected. Even before this, he was being respected. Which indicates even before this, that we're not talking that this happened when he was eight or nine years old. Because it said that we're already paying attention to him. He was growing, he was being respected. Here he's being greatly respected, and everybody's saying, you know, there's something about this man, he's special. He's going to be special. God's got a plan for his life. You know, remember Paul when he talking to Timothy. Remember the call that was placed on you by the laying of hands and the prophecy that was placed upon you as a youth. Okay. There's certain people that you just know God's going to do great things with. You look at them and say, wow, I don't know what it is God's got planned for you, but God's got big plans for you. And here Samuel has that reputation. Everybody knows Everybody knows from Dan to, Dan to Beersheba, from the furthest northern province to the furthest southern province. Now, they could have gone east to west, but Israel's is a pretty narrow place, so east to west isn't that big a deal. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And we're not told what it is that he's told. But it says, the Lord came and talked to Samuel. Oh, what a a wonderful thing it must be to have God talk to you. Now, we we get him to talk to us through the word, and and, we don't need as much of the direct word of God as they did because we have the Bible. As I said, Samuel had five books. The five books of Moses is all he has at this point. There's, you know, not even the book of Judges and Joshua had been, well, Joshua may have been written because Joshua was written mostly by Joshua. so Joshua might have been written, but it wasn't necessarily considered scripture at that time. So what he's studying is going to be the five books of Moses. Uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are what he had to, to get to know God by. And, but it says God appeared un- again and revealed to him, uncovered things to him. And showed him things. And again, we have the advantage. We have an entire Bible where God speaks to us. And even with that, there are times where God will speak to us if we will be quiet enough to listen, when he will expand upon what we read and say, this is for you. And I've had times where it may not have been an audible voice or maybe was. I don't know. It was in my head anyway. And whether it was audible in my head really doesn't matter. God has spoken to me to say certain things over my lifetime. Not often. Often enough that I know he speaks, and you know times when I'm reading a verse and says this verse is for you, pay attention, or you're meditating on it and go and get this little voice in your head. When are you going to apply that? When are when are you going to follow through with what you've been you've know, been meditating on? And you know, one of the things I've been meditating on lately is we need revival in America so bad because our political system is totally messed up. Our, our know, education system is messed up, and there's no hope for our country if we don't get people to turn to God and make him Lord. And we're seeing so many problems in our country, and it's scary just to know that our country is falling apart at the seams if we don't have a revival. And I'm hoping that we'll have a revival. And don't have much hope in it, but I'm going to pray for it, because God knows what he's doing. And there wasn't much hope in a revival during the first... Two great awakenings of this country. Things were so bad that nobody believed that it would get good, and yet God revived the nation. Our only hope is for him, for us to be on our knees and for revival, and it needs to start in our churches and flow out of our churches. And it's going to be hard with so many so-called Christian churches that don't even believe God's word. It's going to be hard to have a revival right now. And it probably was true in the first revival and the second revival. There were probably many churches that weren't preaching the word of God. Because even, especially on the first revival, a lot of people didn't have a Bible. Even in America. Bibles were precious for a long time in America. Uh, the First Continental Congress printed Bibles so that every house in the, in the, in the United States would have a Bible. And it's pretty amazing because if that was done in our day and age, would you imagine how big a problem that would be? And this was the first Continental Congress—the ones that wrote the stuff that everybody's saying would say that it was not allowed. But and they distributed the Bibles because they knew that for our country to survive, it needed to be righteous. And that was the first time that people mass, massively had Bibles uh, in the 1800s. Many families did not have a Bible. There were a lot of places you know, it had a bi- that the pastor might have a Bible. The church usually would have a big pulpit Bible. And if the pastor used any Bible, it was often the pulpit Bible because thing- Bibles were still pretty expensive. Not as expensive as before the Gutenberg press, but still expensive. You know, most of us in our houses have books. In the 18- 1700s, 1800s, you had to be rich to have books in your house. If you weren't rich, you did not have books in your house. It was a very rare thing to have a book. And if you did have a book, the one book you did have would probably be the Bible. Uh, Or you'd have the New England Primer that taught you how to read. But you'd have one of those two books. And if you had one, you probably had the other. (laughs) But here, Samuel is hearing from God. He's being taught by God. He's being groomed to be the next leader. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we Thank you that you called Sam, Samuel to your side, Lord, and that ask you to help us listen for your call in our lives and help us to respond with, here I am, Lord, I'm listening, and speak. Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.